to you by Chemistry. Hello and welcome back to Brought to You by Chemistry. I'm your host, Dr. Alex Lathbridge, and in today's episode, we're talking about antimicrobial discovery and drug development. Super fun topic, I know. Joining me are two wonderful experts who can help bring this topic to life. Dr. Vicky Savage, microbiologist and head of biology at Infects Therapeutics, and Professor Colm Leonard, honorary professor of respiratory medicine and consultant at the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence. To start with, I know this is a very difficult question. I'm going to start with you, Colm. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Colin Leonard. I'm a uh, clinical advisor to the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, and I'm also an NHS consultant respiratory physician. Wonderful. Vicky, could you please introduce yourself? Sure, yeah. So my name's Vicky Savage. I'm a microbiologist, and I've got an interest in antibiotic resistance mechanisms and developing new medicines that overcome antimicrobial resistance. I've worked in academia and industry where I've been for about 10 years now. I'm also head of biology for Infex Therapeutics. So we're a, a biotech based in the Northwest in Cheshire. And we've got an interest in developing new therapies for infections that have a high level of unmet medical needs. So AMR, of, of course, is a key area with a high unmet medical needs and so much of our research is focused around developing new antibiotics and other types of medicines that overcome AMR. Um, the biology team at Infects do a variety of research that helps us understand how how our developmental therapeutics interact with bacteria and how and how likely resistance is to arise to these new drugs. Oh wow, I, I can see you're staying warm today by doing lots and lots of things. Um, <laughs> so I mean with that in mind, um, I guess I'll start with you Vicky, like could you give us like a brief sort of basic rundown on the history of the like discovery of you know, antimicrobials and antibiotics? Because I know it's like it's quite long yeah, you, you know, I mean, it goes back a long way, the, the sort of antibiotic history. So it depends how far you want to take it, really. But it's quite fascinating. Um, antibiotics have actually been essential to humankind long before we knew indeed what they were or how to purify them as medicines. You know, um, there's good uh, wealth of evidence now that shows that um, ancient civilizations, in fact, sort of ancient Egypt and, and so on, consumed antibiotics by drinking things like beer that contained bacteria that produced antibiotics um, or using poultices of mouldy bread where um, there was mould on the bread that produced antibiotics. And these remedies were used to treat things like gum disease and other ailments. And we know this in part because you can actually find traces of antibiotics um, like tetracycline in the, uh, the bones of people from these populations. So, you know, the history of antibiotics goes back a very long way to relatively modern history where we can actually produce and purify antibiotics and use them as medicines um, and the first antibiotic salvasan was developed by paul ehrlich in around 1910 um, fast forward a bit further and we had the very famous discovery of penicillin by by fleming in around 1928 and then came what is sort of broadly referred to as the golden age of antibiotic drug discovery where developers were finding a new class of antibiotics virtually you know every year and this ranged from about the 1940s to the 1960s um, and and now even today the vast majority of antibiotics that are used 
our natural products, which have been derived from soil organisms um, and, and molds, you know. Um, so we're now in a position where bacteria are still evolving um, resistance mechanisms um, to, to all our antibiotic arsenal and, and uh, antibiotic drug discovery has very much slowed down. So, so really, that's that's the the brief history of antibiotics, if you like. I, Coleman and I both appreciate the conciseness of that. Consistency <laughs> doesn't matter. Um, so, Colm, um, I was going to say, you know, could you please like give us a little bit of a insight into you and your work? Because the only thing I really know from you from the last couple of minutes is that you're someone that very much, very much agrees that it's a bad idea to have arsenic-based drugs uh, given to the general public. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, so, so in my distant memory, I certainly remember if, if it was a film called Arsenic and All Lies or something like that. But um, no, um, I mean, I, I'm practicing uh, chest physician for uh, 50% of my time. So, uh, and in fact, a big chunk of my career um, has been looking after people with severe lung disease, and um, particularly patients with end stage diseases that would potentially require lung transplantation. And for um, over 20 years of my career, looking after people after lung transplant uh, uh, operations and heart transplant operations and um, artificial heart operations. And these patients are particularly susceptible to uh, not just infections, but resistant infections. And so I have a lot of first-hand experience of um, having um, problems with antibiotic resistance and trying to find uh, appropriate treatments and also dealing with um, complications of those treatments, where, whether that's um, renal toxicity uh, and so on. So for better or for worse, I'm afraid I have quite a bit of experience of um, the problems with uh, antibiotic resistance and lack of new drugs coming through and also the toxicities of the new drugs and then in my work with NICE then uh, we've been involved in some work trying to um, uh, make antibiotic discovery and um, development uh, more attractive and sustainable. Very briefly, who are um, who are NICE? So NICE um, is an organization called National Institute for Health and Care Excellence and uh, they were set up over 20 years ago um, with the reasonably broad remit that essentially is to try and ensure that um, whether it's new drug treatments or new pathways of care or new medical technologies, that the NHS gets best advice and that the NHS, um, if you like, has an opportunity to have the cost effectiveness of certain treatments assessed and uh, there's a best use of resources and best um, guidance for clinicians and patients in the National Health Service. Really nice are supposed to reduce postcode prescribing and improve um, quality of care, um, be that around use of medications or, or defining better pathways of care for treatments and defining best use of medical technologies. Okay. And so like with that, because you mentioned sort of as a uh, practicing physician, having firsthand, uh, like firsthand perspective on the effects of antimicrobial resistance. I mean, what is that like for you? You know, because you have that, you have those two sides of you, you have both seeing patients and working with nice to understand policy at a higher level. Like what, what is that balance like to you? 
Um, it can be quite chaotic, actually, but um, it's really helpful in the sense to straddle the fence between um, things that are, uh, you know, developing national policies or guidance, um, but also having that frontline um, uh, experience that um, hopefully helps influence uh, NICE's outputs being uh, real world and, and, and uh, practical. Um, and it also helps to sort of um, make the case sometimes for, um, you know, the importance of a particular piece of work or medication or technology um, because of that first-hand experience. But of course, my main experience is in the respiratory arena, but the work I do for NICE is across specialties. So it, it's really helpful as a clinician to have those clinical networks of colleagues, um, be they in the Northwest where I'm based or around the country to um, where I can um, touch base with them to, to make sure I get uh, you know best advice, be it a, a specialty outside my um, own clinical area. Oh, okay. Wow. And so, I mean, I guess bouncing off of that um, to you, Vicky, because Holmes mentioned that, you know, we have so many issues um, around antimicrobial resistance and, you know, with the NHS trying to get medication, trying to get drugs at sort of the, the most efficient, best price and stuff. But when it comes to actually making drugs, actually discovering drugs, you mentioned a bit earlier um talking about sort of the, the history of drugs uh, sort of antimicrobials and um what are actually the steps involved in getting a new drug developed or at least discovering a drug and getting it into clinical pathways uh, i mean and depending on who you ask you can split it into lots of different stages or just a few um of course the first stage is discovery so um, a lot of this will happen in sort of academia. So in universities do a, a great deal of target identification and um, sort of the early stages of drug discovery, trying to find fragments or small molecules that can inhibit these targets. And then after that, that can be quite a long, a long stage, you know, many, many years. Um, but then once the hit is identified, it would move into preclinical development. And this in of itself can be split into several stages. So you've got the hit to lead phase where you're taking something that's inhibiting a target and you're trying to make it more drug-like. Move into lead optimization where, again, you're trying to make it more drug-like and sort of refine its efficacy. Um, and you're also looking at um, infection models to see if your your drug can, uh, can treat infection in, in animal models. Um, after that, you move into regulatory toxicology studies. Um, where you're doing quite expensive um, toxicology studies that are in line with what your national regulator will require um, before a drug could go into clinical trials. And assuming that's all okay, you will then move into clinical development, which is sort of split into phase one, two, and three. So phase one, you're usually looking at healthy volunteers, relatively small number of them, and you're looking at safety and um, and how the drug behaves in, in the human body effectively. Phase two, looking at patients, um, again, looking at safety, but also efficacy and how, how your drug compares with what's normally used in that infection type. And then phase three, many, many more patients looking again at safety and efficacy, um, trying to spot any uh, rarer side effects, that sort of thing. And all be, being well, you'll then apply to your regulator to be able to use your, your drug on um, the market which they cover. 
And then after that, you'll be doing post-marketing studies um, where you're, again, looking for rare side effects, which you wouldn't have found um, in the smaller number of patients you've got in clinical trials. And following things like resistance as well, you know, how does your how does your drug behave in real world use? So overall, it probably takes about 10 to 15 years from sort of early stages of drug development through to launch of a drug um, and it'll probably cost about one, one to two billion dollars. And probably with inflation these days, it's probably on the higher end of that. So it's in the billions. Yeah. That's, that's ri- ridiculous. That sounds ridiculous to me. Right, Colm, you're nodding your head. <laughs> no, I'm nodding to agree with it in the billions, not not, not agreeing that it's ridiculous. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's an enormous amount of money to develop a new antibiotic and uh... where where is that cost what what is that is there some part of it that costs the the most it's generally as you get further into the process so um you know large clinical trials you're you're talking multiple sites essentially across the globe um these are enormous studies involving tons of people and, and you know they cost millions and millions and developers might do several of these um manufacturing a, a drug can be very expensive to, and you know each each stage of these processes is sort of a cumulative effect or the costs add up and kind of let's not forget you know so developers have got to try and recoup that one to two billion dollars for that successful drug but you know only around five percent of programs will will make it from early stages of drug development through to launch so they've also got to recoup the sunken costs for all the programs that didn't make it as well and you know this is really this is really what we're up against wow i didn't realize it was so much there so with that in mind like i think maybe colm you might have perspective on this but like how does this get paid for like how 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 does this this cost in sort of drug discovery and manufacturing and all these um, clinical trials and stuff translate into like cost in terms of like healthcare, especially like in the UK with the NHS and stuff. Um, well, that's 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 the, really a key point uh, in the sense that Vicky has laid the groundwork for this really well because the reality is when a new antibiotic comes to market, in general the comparators are relatively cheap and uh, often generic, and so. A new antibiotic comes to market, a company has spent, as Vicky said, perhaps between one and two billion dollars developing it. And um, firstly, the antibiotic doesn't get used very much because new antibiotics are appropriate to reserve and try and what we call steward them best so that we don't encourage early emergence of resistance. So levels of usage tend to be low. Um, the course of treatment for antibiotics is usually short. It can be a week or 10 days or two weeks and in smaller uh, situations and smaller percentages longer than that. So it's very hard for companies to recoup that development cost. And, and that has led to this concept of a market failure where a number of companies have filed for bankruptcy uh, in the last few years, even when they've successfully brought important new antibiotics to market. A number of companies have failed to launch in Europe and the UK or very delayed launch um, because of that um, difficulty around um, market entry and getting reimbursement on an appropriate level. Um, and thirdly, the reason that it's difficult um, for 
uh, companies to recoup cost. It's not just the, the, the low levels of usage, the relatively modest price, but um, it's also um, the fact that uh, with antibiotics, that the value assessment is totally inadequate. If you look at costs of antibiotics compared with, for example, oncology drugs, now, while there are many oncology drugs that are potentially life-saving, some of the newer drugs are really just life-extending for weeks or months, um, as opposed to an antibiotic that can be truly curative and life-saving. And yet, you have oncology drugs costing, you know, tens of thousands of pounds um, for a patient's treatment or, or more than that. And, you know, an antibiotic that costs, you know, really tiny amounts of money, even, you know, in the sort of hundreds of dollars or, or you know, one or two thousand pounds, you know, for a course of treatment. So there's a real issue that the standard reimbursement mechanisms for new drugs where a company brings, you know, a new drug for, a, you know, let's just say a condition like, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or, um, you know, and they, they will try and sell that to as many patients as possible and are able to achieve a high price um, because the system values those drugs much more highly than antibiotics. And so um, there's a real problem that, that this market failure has caused largely big pharma companies to move away from antimicrobial development and it's caused, as I say, a, a real problem with um, the area now being serviced mainly by small companies who tend to be underfunded in very precarious financial positions. Oh, I mean, just on that point, now this may sound like a very stupid question, um, so both of you feel free to hide your grimaces when I ask it, but when you have an, you know, an antimicrobial, when you have a drug that's been developed, um, and let's say a big company has developed it. They've got this drug out. It's it's a it's a molecule, right? You can you can look it up. You can feel like this is a molecule. What's stopping you know any generic company just you know copying that, putting it out there, manufacturing, putting it out there? I'm, I'm thinking of it in terms of you know like Apple AirPods, the headphones. You know, as soon as that technology came out, you could then very easily on Amazon buy very cheap copies, cheap imitations of that, and they were sort of everywhere, saturating the market. So what's stopping people from creating sort of generic drugs that then um, the pharmaceutical companies don't get that money and then those drugs sort of flood the market? No, not a stupid question at all. So yes. um, <laughs> drugs like like anything else that you can buy, a, a, the company who's developed them will have intellectual property ar around that drug. Um, that can be on the structure of the drug, similar structures, how it's made, what it's used for. Um, and that intellectual property um, protects that, that product and the company from someone else making it. So when the drug finally gets to market, if it's successful, um, the developer has um, a period of time known as the exclusivity period. So it's usually five to ten years that the, the company has. Um, and in that time, generics companies are not allowed to, to copy it and not allowed to make it. And then once that period of time runs out, then, you know, the, the product is then off patent. And then that's when generics companies can come in and make it more cheaply. Um, so, you know, based on what um, Colin was just saying before, you know, um, antibiotics aren't really used. They're sort of kept on the shelf for for 
um, patients who absolutely need them um, to try and support stewardship. So we preserve the, the sort of longevity of that drug against resistance. Um, but then, you know, developers are up against the clock. They've only got that five to 10 year period um, to try and make back that one to two billion dollars that we discussed before. So, you know, we have this finite amount of time where where developers are frontally trying to sort of recoup their, their sunken costs in that product. So is that balance? You've got a drug that you've developed that sort of maybe, you know, a success of 5%, you know, and all the other drugs that you tried to develop, they failed somewhere along that pipeline. You've still got to recoup that cost and that cost, that sunk cost then goes into this drug that has worked. Then the, the companies want to recoup that cost by the drug being sold and being used. But Colm, on your side, as clinicians, you don't want to prescribe that drug you want to steward it in only for you know to, to prevent antimicrobial resistance from from building up so how 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 does that work how how do you balance that how do you get the drug sold and used more and more when you don't want to really use it a lot because you want to make sure that it you keep the resist you keep it still as useful um, as possible well, the key thing is it doesn't work, and that's why companies have been filing for bankruptcy and failing to launch or delaying launch outside the United States. And so that's partly um, what was um, the problem that was um, significantly commented on in one of the key reports around AMOR. So um, Lord Jim O'Neill um, was commissioned by uh, David Cameron's government at the time to produce a report on antimicrobial resistance, and it's quite a wide-ranging report, but in terms of antibiotic development and sustainable antibiotic pipeline, um, he made some recommendations around something called push incentives to um, uh, encourage early development of the type that Vicky has uh, talked about earlier on, but he also introduced a concept um, called pull incentives, where he recognized this market failure and commented that it could take, in theory, over 20 years for a company to recoup their development costs um, for a new antimicrobial. And what he meant by pull incentives to fix that issue were um, payments um, to companies that bring a new product to market that were independent of volume of sales. So therefore a company that brought a new antibiotic um, to market uh, could happily accept the fact that that would in a sense sit on the shelf for a period of time and be appropriately held back or stewarded but nonetheless that they would get reimbursed at a level um, that would um, help them recoup their development costs and of course it's not just the one to two billion dollars that Vicky talked about to get an antimicrobial to market, it's been estimated that in the first 10 years after an antibiotic comes to market that you probably need something of the order of $350 million in that um, first 10 years to account for, you know, surveillance and post-marketing studies and, and manufacturing and so on. Okay. And so like, what does that look like for what does that look for in terms of our healthcare system, in terms of the NHS? Like, how can the NHS, like, I've heard about the sort of the NHS subscription purchasing model. Like, what is that? And is that yeah. unique to okay. just the UK? So, 
Yes. Yeah, so, okay. So I'm happy to talk about that. So this UK um, subscription model, um, so this work was um, commenced as, as a consequence of the O'Neill report, uh, which published in 2016, and the UK government um, responded positively to the recommendations in that report in a number of areas, including poll incentives. So um, NICE have been working for a number of years with uh, NHS England, and with significant support from the Department of Health and Social Care uh, on a project where we developed a new um, methodology to more um, fully assess the value of new antibiotics. So we would take on board the fact that there are benefits to antibiotics beyond the individual patient that they help in the sense that um, not only are they enabling for that patient, whether it's to have hip surgery or a transplant operation or uh, chemotherapy um, or treatment for a particular infection, but they also enable uh, other procedures in the sense that if you have uh, somebody stuck in a hospital bed um, with a resistant bug, it's not just that patient that's impacted, but that bed can't be used for somebody else to have their bypass operation or hip surgery. And so, so we've evolved a, a different methodology that has attempted to assess more fully the value of antibiotics beyond individual benefits to patients. That's one section of it. And then using that value assessment um, on two uh, antimicrobials as part of a test project, um, we then have initiated in July this year fixed payments um, delinked from volume of sales uh, to two companies that um, produce those two products. And those payments will be uh, fixed for initial three years with an option to extend for up to 10 years and uh, the maximum uh, contract value uh, for each antibiotic is a maximum payment of 10 million pounds per year for up to 10 years and so that's the first situation anywhere in the world where somebody has delivered an, a novel reimbursement mechanism based on a uh, more holistic value assessment of two uh, anti antibiotics and we're hoping that other countries will adapt or adopt that approach to uh, try and achieve a more global type poll incentive to uh, make antibiotic development more attractive. Okay, so just, Vicky, just before I come to you very quickly, Colm, so does that mean, if you can answer it briefly, does that mean the NHS um, then pays for drugs even if no one uses them in that sort of period? Yes, that's absolutely correct. Uh, this sort of this financial models and all of this, like, what do these sort of incentives mean for you know your work, work in your field, or for you know companies like Infex Therapeutics? Yeah, I mean, you think most antibiotic drug development is done by small companies, you know, particularly in the UK. There's no UK-based large pharmaceutical company involved in in um, antibiotic drug development at the moment. There's only about 12 small companies in the UK um, working in ant antibiotics. Um, so these poll, poll incentives are really important for organisations of all sizes. Um, small companies generally won't take a drug from discovery all the way through to market just because of the amount of money required. Um, it's generally the sort of general mechanism is that a small company will do a deal with a large pharmaceutical company who will then pay for the commercialization and, and all the marketing costs that um, go go with it um, and then you know share share the revenue 
downstream. So, so really what the, the, the reimbursement mechanisms mean for small companies is that um, it'll be hopefully easier. It will look more um, lucrative to large pharmaceutical companies to get involved in antibiotic drug development again. Um, and if that happens, it also brings in private investment back into small companies. So, you know, because of the, the market failure for antibiotics, getting private investment in this space is difficult. So, you know, hopefully it should reinvigorate the space on, on both of those fronts, both drawing more interest from big pharma again and then also private investment. And of course, if we do that, then, you know, more companies will be involved in the space. And then you've got that sort of critical mass of um, scientific research happening to hopefully bring, you know, many more new drugs to market for patients. So this is looking at it from very sort of a uh, company model, very sort of economics model and even healthcare. But going back into sort of the, the science of it, like we've, I say we, like I'm involved in this, like antimicrobials have been a thing, you know, like you said, even all the way back to like ancient Egypt. And do we not by now like have in our pocket, you know, the knowledge that, okay, I know that this drug from the 50s uh, worked quite well, but uh, antimicrobial resistance uh, came up very, very, very quickly. Like, can we mix and match in terms of drug discovery? Like, oh, I know this, you know, phenol group. I know that this sort of chemical structural work. Like, do we have like a library of little things that can streamline drug discovery and make things easier? Like, are there bits of like chemistry or microbiology that we've like, you know, that we've got, we've got stored up that makes this stuff easier? This is the point where you say, yeah, yeah, we're smashing it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm going to caveat all the next statements with I'm a biologist, not a chemist, but definitely, yeah. you know. Yeah, all... we're smashing it. <laughs> <laughs> we, we are smashing it, yeah. So particularly for small molecule um, antimicrobials, you know, uh, we, we, of course, have a fairly um, big um, medicinal chemistry department at Infects. And, you know, um, some of the stuff they do is absolutely fantastic. And it's, it's, it's pretty well understood how you can get small molecules into both gram-positive and gram-negative organisms. We know what changes will will help with that with that process. Um, but you know, I think as I mentioned before, the key the key difficulty with antimicrobial drug development is just the the eternal evolutionary power of bacteria. Um, so it's not just a case of getting things into bugs, but also you know they have a variety of mechanisms to pump those drugs back out. Um, they have acquired resistance mechanisms to break down those drugs. Um, so it's not as cut and fast as, you know, we've got the medchem to fix the problem. Um, you know, bacteria are highly adaptable. Um, and and that's, that's really the challenge for us, you know. In, I guess, in a perfect world, I'm going to start with you, Vicky, and then ask this to Colm. What would in the perfect world, a great drug discovery pipeline look like in terms of getting it from like uh, the lab to humans? For an individual program, um, you know, ideally you have your, your, your target product profile, so we call it um, the, you know, what infection type you want to treat. Um, the spectrum of bugs that you want to treat within that infection type, you know, that's defined from the beginning. And throughout the preclinical stages, the drug should be safe, very safe, um, 
both in you know in vitro so in in, in sort of test tube testing and also in you know animal models um, it should be highly efficacious um, and then the clinical development um, it's not just it, it working and being safe but when you're developing a drug that targets um, resistant bacteria for example it's, it's trying to find the patients who who have those resistant bacteria so your clinical development plan um, needs to be well thought out and enable you to get there with with your drug um, and of course ideally you have all all the funds to do it you know you have deep pockets to be able to fund all these expensive phases that we've discussed before um, for you to for you to launch your drug and and also ideally it should be relatively future proofed um, so as not to be susceptible to to resistance mechanisms that might evolve further down the line. Yeah. So when things sort of do go right um, and we get these new drugs, you know, these are they, these are causes for celebration. Like, you know, um, recently GlaxoSmithKline, they've put forward a drug called, I'm going to call it correctly as it's written down, it's either Gepotidacin or Gepotidacin, a uh, drug for a the treatment of UTIs, or um sort of gonorrhea including multi-drug resistant strains like this sounds like a good thing is this a good thing in terms of uh you know from from your perspective start with you Vicky. yeah i mean absolutely any any new antimicrobial that gets to market for me is an absolute win you know it's a win for patients it's a win for the area it's a win for clinicians um gepotidacin uh, you've mentioned it's it's under evaluation for um, urinary tract infections, also known as cystitis, to to um, the general public, and and gonorrhea. So it's the it's the urinary tract infection um, trial, which was stopped early because the data looks so good. Um, so, you know, it's a completely new drug of a new class. So let us hope that the gonorrhea trial yields similar results because both of these areas have got um, resistance problems. Um, but of course, as with all new drugs, the proof will really be in real world use. You know, how does it stack up when it's used in, in patients? What's the longevity of the drug like? Um, but fantastic news for, for GSK and for and for patients. I like that you said for GSK first. Someone's angling, yeah. <laughs> someone's angling for a new job. I see. All that GSK money. I understand. Sort of going forward there, like this is, you know, we are talking about antimicrobial sort of anti antibiotics but i know that it's not just these like what roles do other treatments or you know things like vaccines play in the future when it comes to these sorts of illnesses yeah i mean absolutely there's there's multiple technologies these days for um tackling amr um there's all sorts of things you know we've got virulence inhibitors so instead of Killing the bacteria, we just inhibit their ability to cause infection. Potentiators, which can um, make bacteria to, susceptible to um, antibiotics, antibodies. Um, there's resistance breakers, so you know things that knock down key resistance mechanisms in bacteria to restore the activity of, of antibiotics. And things like phages, you know, they've been in, in the press quite a bit. There's some really exciting sort of phage therapies in in clinical development um so there's there's definitely a variety of ways to tackle amr um you mentioned vaccines i think vaccine development in bacteria has been quite difficult because 
bacteria are incredibly complex compared to things like viruses and they have a, a knack for evading the immune response. Um, but I, I really do think a combination of, of all of these approaches is what is needed to, to A, support antibiotic stewardship, um, but also to o overcome AMR in general. I think that's a very comprehensive uh, summary by Vicky. Uh, no, I totally, I totally agree with that. Uh, certainly, the early pipeline is very innovative. Um, the the World Health Organization produces regular reports about the pipeline, and certainly um, some of the reports in recent years have been fairly depressing. Reading about the late uh, development pipeline, the pipeline when it's near to market, but the, the early development pipeline, as, as Vicky has said, has a whole range of new approaches that um, I think are massively important and um, and we need the, the healthcare system to, to help, um, you know, support the further development and get these to market and, and ensure that the companies and the products are sustainable um, once they get to market. And so, like, with that, you know, Vic, you mentioned with um, GSK and this um, this new drug that the clinical trial was stopped early because the data seemed so good, you know, and over the last two years, obviously, um, the big thing in terms of scientific research, in terms of clinical trials, has been sort of COVID vaccines. Now, what has the drug discovery world, like, have they learned major things from that? For me, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, it really shows what can be achieved um, by the scientific community when sort of capacity and money is almost no object, you know, how quickly quickly things can move from relatively early stages into clinical trials and then and, and then into people, you know, um, when there's no bottlenecks in terms of uh, finances or manufacturing. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's really impressive how, how quickly these vaccines came through. I mean, I think vaccine development is quite different from therapeutic drug development, but there probably is some learnings that we can take from the, the COVID-19 vaccine trials, you know, sort of hybrid approaches to to trials to, to speed up the process, if you like. So this is something we've sort of used on our Respex trial at Infect. So this is a, an antibody um, for a key uh, pathogen, Pseudomonas aeruginosa. So we've sort of adopted like a hybrid trial for our phase one to include both sort of healthy, healthy volunteers and, and some patients as well. Um, so there's definitely learnings for it, um, but I think a key thing probably for, for governments to learn, in fact, is like the preparedness when it comes to infectious disease. You know, for all we know, the next pandemic is going to be a bacterial pathogen. You know, some would say AMR is, is, is the silent pandemic, which is already here. So um, definitely learnings in terms of preparedness. And Colm, like from your perspective, because this is a completely natural segue, in terms of your perspective from that, have there been major learnings that we can then apply to sort of AMR? Um, I think the answer is, is yes. I, mean, I think Vicky's touched on the main ones, and I suppose just to, she's, Vicky's already mentioned this about trials, but I think certainly from a clinic, clinician's perspective, what's been fantastic about COVID were the, the trial networks and, and, and you know, how the, these platform trials and, you know, multiple therapies being, um, you know, tested at the same time, and then, you know, the ability to adapt the, the trial as it's going forward. If, you know, one therapy is not effective and it dropping out of the trial and, and different. So they, definitely there's been an enormous advance in, in showing, certainly in the UK and, and, and I'm sure in other parts of the world, but particularly the UK, the trial networks and 
how they've designed those trials to, um, you know, rapidly assess some of these new COVID therapies that have been coming on board. And I think B, the the value of diagnostics. I mean, um, you know, the, the, the fact that you know, people were swapping themselves and using lateral flow tests as well as pitching up for more standard PCR tests. There's a a much better understanding of the importance of diagnostics. And I think we need to use that in the AMR arena. Mm. And in terms of sort of taking positives toward from um, from negatives and from difficulties, like with how drug discovery works, as some understanding from you both, both of you, um, there's a lot of collaboration there. Like very, very briefly, and I mean that because we have a very limited amount of time left with you two, how do you think, um, collaboration can help us move forward. Are there any areas still as we sort of learn how to discover drugs and implement them into healthcare where collaboration can be super key? Collaboration, as I, as I mentioned before, you know, antibiotic drug discovery is predominantly done by small companies. And as a small company, you, you can't do it all. Um, so collaboration is absolutely essential, particularly in the in the early stages of drug discovery I, I mentioned before you know a lot of a lot of discovery um and early stage stuff is done is done by universities um so there's been a, an excellent collaboration set up in the northwest called icon um which is the um innovation infection innovation consortium um and this is sort of between um liverpool um universities liverpool clinical trial facility um infects therapeutic and, and several other companies and it's really set up um effectively a center for excellence covering all stages of drug development from discovery through preclinical and then the clinical trial capability as well so really using um everyone's strengths within the in the area to try and um best accelerate drug development in in infection um including amr so collaboration is absolutely essential um in this space and it will be uh, required for us to um get more drugs to market Hmm. Let's say you open your email um, tomorrow morning. I'm not going to let you do it today because it's almost midday and it's lunch. You start tomorrow. You open your email and at the top, there is an email that has like everything in big caps, um, you know, and that email, whatever's in that email has made you a thousand times more optimistic for the future of, you know, solving AMR. What would be in that email? Probably um, international sort of joined up pull mechanisms. You know, that Colin's been talking about um, really nicely for us. You know, you mentioned the UK one. There's a similar um, pull mechanism in the US, the Pasteur Act, um, that's trying to get through Congress. You know, it's an, it's an international uh, effort that needs to come to fruition, really. Um, as I mentioned, that will really reinvigorate the space both in terms of big pharma involvement and also private investment as well and colm for you you open up your hospital computer uh what is in that email that makes you go yes i'm a thousand times more optimistic pastor act is a really key one in the states um because it's you know very significant uh, funding in the hundreds of millions of dollars to billions of dollars for new products. Um, I think that's a game changer because it, it, it totally changes the um, the discussions that early developers will have with venture capital or their funders um, because it creates a potentially uh, more sustainable 
um, market for antimicrobials. Wonderful. That was brilliant. Um, well, both of you, thank you so much. Um, I think that is it. You have both smashed it in terms of your jobs, but also like here today. So thank you very, very much. All right, that is it from us today. Make sure you join us again next episode where I'm chatting all things antimicrobial resistance and diagnostics with Dr. Tina Joshi, Professor of Microbiology at Plymouth University, Dr. Karmani Walia from the Indian Council for Medical Research, and we get to hear from one of ITV's favorite health and medical experts, Dr. Hilary Jones. All right, see you next time. Mm-hmm.